So for those that are not really familiar with you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you got into auditing? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I've been a software developer for I think about I don't know, 18 years professionally. Um, I was into it as a hobby when I was 16. I'm in my mid-40s now. So I've been doing it for a while. Um, and I've been interested in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology for a long time, but I kind of took a pause with that uh, with my last job where I was doing blockchains for business, but there's not much innovation there. So I took a pause from the cryptocurrency world. And I just um, randomly came across Christoph Michel's uh, blog post, How to Be a Smart Contract Auditor, right around the time where I was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with my job and thinking about quitting. And I read it, then went and checked where he sat on the leaderboard, saw that he'd made $900,000 from it and thought, oh, who knows, this could be my get-rich-quick scheme. So let's see how we go. And that's where it really all started. And that was in March of 2022, when I just sort of dropped everything and started doing that. That's not entirely true. I actually ended up quitting my job in May, so it took me another two months. And that was after some success, early successes on Code Arena. I mean, not great successes, but just earning some money at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that article was probably responsible for many of us joining Quarterina at the start and just starting auditing. And I'm glad that it's been working out for you really well. The Rick get rich get rich quick scheme of of auditing. Yeah, I couldn't have believed it's turned out as well as it has. There's been some luck involved there, but also I guess fortune favors the prepared mind as they say. And I was uh, it turns out that I did have a lot of the skills necessary for this job and didn't even realize it. Yeah, I remember you telling me um, a few months after we started, because I believe we started really close to each other, and you were telling me, you know, I don't imagine I'll ever make that amount of money, um, but I'm still willing to give it a try. And fast forward to now, you're, you're doing those kind of things, and it's just really cool to see that it actually came to realization. Yeah, I'm as, in as much disbelief as anyone though. Uh, it, when it happened, I just thought, I, don't, I can't believe it happened to me. Uh, there's many things in my life which I've been very excited about and then worked very hard at them and still failed at them. Yeah, it shows that if you try for long enough, hard enough, eventually it's gonna work out, hey? Yeah, I think that's true. So when you were going through your Kyber hack, how did you feel during, during the different stages of the process? So how were you feeling and why did you decide to have a look at it in the first place? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So because of some audits I'd done earlier in the year, uh, I gained some expertise in concentrated liquidity projects meaning that I understood them at a, at a high level now, and that's always a good advantage to have. Uh, and then uh, I did actually find a bug in 
um, an undeployed um, contract in SushiSwap Trident. They didn't end up using that, uh, that, that code. They didn't deploy it. They ended up using a fork of Uniswap V3. But because I'd spent some time, found a bug in, in, a, in a project like that, I thought, well, okay, it's worth looking at some of the other concentrated liquidity projects out there. And so after that, I guess I looked at Uniswap V3. Now, they're obviously a very solid project, and I failed to find anything. I also looked at a few others that were uh, inspired by Uniswap V3, but I couldn't really find anything on... Um, I couldn't really find anything on Immunify. Uh, there is actually some stuff in... There are actually some Solana um, CLMMs that I might get around to looking at at some point. Uh, but because I don't understand Rust or Solana that well yet, that's going to take a lot of work. Anyway, this, that was sort of the situation I was in. I didn't really have um, any idea of any more concentrated liquidity projects I could have a look at. Until one day, I half remembered a conversation I'd had because when I was um, learning about concentrated liquidity projects, I actually looked at the Code Arena audit competition for SushiSwap Trident. And I was reading through uh, some of the bugs that were found on that. And I saw one which showed a really deep understanding. And it was um, one of the judges from C4, but who happened to be competing in that, uh, uh, that, that particular contest. Anyway, while I was reading through that report, I was so impressed with the depth of understanding. Yeah, it's a hiccup, um, oh, yeah, hiccup yeah. H3. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was looking through, um, yeah, I, <laughs> sorry, I just got caught off guard there. But I was so impressed with the depth of his understanding that I just reached out to say, hey, wow, that's really impressive. How the hell do you find things like that? And he said, well, actually, it's because I was learning about concentrated liquidity projects at the time. I worked for this um, project called um, KyberSwap. And so sometime in, in April, I half remembered this conversation that I'd had really, I think it was probably in January 2023, I'd have to go check, half remembered the conversation, looked through my history and found KyberSwap. Now, it doesn't have a defined bug bounty program. So I went and had a look at it. One of the first things I like to check is what's the total value locked in the project? That's a good indication of whether you might want to pursue it or not. And in all of its concentrated liquidity pools, it had about 100 million uh, in liquidity provider funds. So it's obviously, if there is a vulnerability, there's a huge risk there. Uh, and that's pretty much how I decided to look at the code base. Uh, and then I just hoped that if I did find something that they would be amenable to paying out a bug bounty. Yeah. Right. So you, from past experience, already had an inkling of something that could go wrong with that type of setup of concentrated liquidity. And then you start doing the proof of concept. How long did it take you? How far did you have to dig in? And how did you feel as you were, you were doing it? 
Yeah, that's, well, that's a great question. So, um, how, lo uh, how long did it take me? Okay, so it still took like a few days. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and you might have to remind me what those three questions were, but I'll start with how long did it take. So, it still took a few days because the code base for KyberSwap is written from scratch and it has some of its own uh, features in it, which are different to Uniswap v3. Although it does share some of the concepts, in particular, it does share the tick mathematics um, features. That's pretty much exactly the same. But the rest of the design is, uh, yeah, it's written from scratch and has some additional features. There's a blog post which covers that. Uh, I think I referenced that in one of my tweets, maybe not in the blog post, um, but I'd be happy to share it with anyone who asked me about yeah, it. Yeah, I can leave it in the description. Yeah, we can do that. Anyway, so uh, I had to read through the code base from scratch, and although I'd found something in SushiSwap, that attack vector just didn't exist in this one. It, was, uh, it just did something completely different inside the swap function. But with all of these concentrated liquidity projects, it's the boundary values right on the ticks that really matter. Um, and if something goes wrong there, especially when you're crossing a tick, then it pretty much just has to go wrong. It's like um, all projects suffer from some kind of vulnerability, which is particular to their kind of... Um, to, 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 the, to the kind of project it is. If it's a lending protocol, you might be able to, I don't know, make someone else uh, get liquidated or something like that. It's very common. And you'll find when you look into the actual underlying details, it's always the, the, the exploit's always slightly different, because like, otherwise people would just go out and immediately secure all of these systems. But anyway, so there was, there was a flaw in um, some of the boundary logic in KyberSwap, uh, but it ended up being quite different to what I'd seen before. Um, so how long did it take me? I think three or four days, perhaps about 30 to 40 hours. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, to put it in perspective, that is working on the proof of concept, trying to figure out if you could actually break this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now I can sort of go into. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, right up until the moment I actually found the floor, I didn't think there was one, so I just had to keep the faith. Uh, but I guess I would have given up at some point as well. Um, there's a tech. There's a sort of general technique that I like to use when I'm using Foundry, um, which is. I like to put the system in an interesting state first by overriding storage variables to something that I think is interesting. And then from that interesting state, if I can then exploit it, that doesn't prove that I can actually exploit the system. But it does suggest to me that if I can get it into that intermediate state, then I can exploit it. And I like to do that because it keeps, gets me interested in the problem. So, I'll put in some intermediate state 
see if I can exploit it. If that's easy enough, then I've got to get to this intermediate state from over here. Uh, and I did find that if I put in a certain interesting intermediate state, that an exploit was possible, but the question was whether I could get it into that state. And right up until the point that I managed to do that, I didn't think it was possible. But then it did turn out to be possible. So, uh, and then yeah. I had a working POC. Now the next question was, how did I feel during this process? Okay. Uh, I definitely got an immediate rush as soon as I saw that, uh, I could drain this pool of 87% of funds, uh, or more if I made the flash loan later. Uh, larger, sorry. Uh, but then, I don't know, there's always this moment of disbelief as well, where you're like, no, no, I've, I've made some mistake. <laughs> this, is, this isn't legit. But then, yeah. no, I forked the real state. It looks real. I, I sort of check it from many different angles. Like, I might get the contract to report using its own view functions, how much money it's got in it. But then I might use other methods, like check with the token contract how much the actual pool has got as well. And that gives me a second level of confirmation that, no, no, these, these funds have really left the contract and are sitting in the attacker's wallet. Uh, so um, yeah, I guess I pretty quickly convinced myself that it was real. And then, yes, then I was very excited. Uh, but somehow, this time around, a little more relaxed uh, than I was with my first bounty with Notional. Uh, and I think that just came with experience. I, I felt fairly confident that I was going to receive some payment, uh, not knowing what, what that amount would be. But I was fairly certain that um, if the project was fair-minded that um, that I would receive some payment. Yeah, I think with the previous experience you had as well, it makes it easier because you, you're already familiar with all the steps that you have to go through. It's not everything new for the first time. And I think it's really cool how you highlighted that you didn't know if it was possible, but you still spent many days on it. And I yeah. feel like a lot of people might feel like they're looking at something right now and they just don't feel like there's gonna be a way, but if they just digging a little bit deeper, then they might end up actually cracking it and figuring it out. Would you mind running yeah. us through how you figured it out in a, in a quick summarized way? Yeah, I, I don't mind doing that. I probably am gonna have to provide the viewers a bit of background on what concentrated liquidity projects are as well, but I, that's, that should be easy enough, and I'll just do that in a... Um, what, what we've got here is what I would call liquidity bands. They're, they're actually known as tick ranges in the concentrated liquidity um, project documentation. And the idea is that for like a regular AMM, you have two tokens and you have some price which sits between zero and infinity up here, right? And um, a constant product automated market maker, you know, can uh, move the price in principle between zero and infinity. But it turns out it's more efficient if people place liquidity in these smaller bands, these smaller price ranges. You get more capital efficiency this way. 
uh, and I won't go into the details of that too much, but just let's take it as read that that's um, true for this for now. So a liquidity provider can come in and provide liquidity between the 90 cent mark and the, and the $1 mark. And then that means that if the price happens to sit in there and somebody makes a swap, that liquidity provider will make some fees, okay? Um, <clears throat> but for our particular example here, I've put the price somewhere between $1.10 and $1.20. So as long as people are swapping in here, any LP that's provided liquidity in this band is gonna get fees and all the others won't. Um, uh, these things here, these vertical bars, are, are basically the tick boundaries. So that's $1.10 there, and that's $1.20 there. And now I'll um, stop sharing that and show you another diagram, which I think kind of shows the liquidity uh, better. It's a diagram actually from the SushiSwap documentation, but I really like it. <clears throat> so can you see that as well? Yep. Excellent. Okay, so this blue liquidity provider, light blue liquidity provider down the bottom has provided liquidity in the range zero to whatever. And then green has come along and provided it between say 25 and 700. And then purple has provided it between 100 and 800. You'll see that because that doesn't overlap, with green in the range 7 to 800, that the liquidity in the band 700 to 800 is actually a bit lower than everywhere else. Then we have red up the top, which has added some more liquidity in the range 300 to 600. So <clears throat> now what I have to do is kind of tell you about a system invariant that's necessary to be true. Uh, there's a storage variable, which is actually just called liquidity. And that tells you what the current liquidity is in the current band that the price sits in. So it initially starts over here at zero and then goes up by a little bit. Let's call that height there 10, okay? So in this band it would be 10. And then as we cross this tick boundary here, it would bump up to, let's call it 30. And as we cross this tick boundary, it would bump up to say, let's call it 50, and then here it goes up to 80. And then if you cross this tick boundary here, it'll actually go back down to 50. And then here it'll go back down to, uh, what did I say, 30 before. So that's, let's, say, let's say that's 40. Finally, it goes back down to 10. And then at some point, you might even go off the end of all the liquidity that's been provided and actually be back down to zero. But the idea is that going from left to right, you're gonna be going up and down but you'll never drop below zero, okay? Uh, that's, that's something that you want. Anyway, um, I should sort of, I'll, I'll go back to the text window. What I found with KyberSwap was a way to double add liquidity as an LP. And you might think this isn't that bad at first, but generally double, add, double adding of anything is a bad idea. You know, for instance, the double spend problem is what is solved by uh, proof of work and other consensus mechanisms like proof Can of stake. Can you elaborate a little bit on what do you mean by double adding liquidity? Yeah, I can. So 
Um, let's say you had this liquidity band here and you spent 20 units of liquidity to get this to 20. That's what would normally happen. But when you double add liquidity, you spend 20 units of liquidity, but you actually end up with 40 units of liquidity in this band, which is a mistake. Does that explain it well enough? Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty clear. All right, cool. So 20 is what I spent, but I actually got 40 units of liquidity instead. Now, why is this, uh, why is this an issue? Well, one of the first things you might think is, well, I'm an attacker, I want to manipulate the price. How would I manipulate the price? So let's say that you're working with some, um, I don't know, uh, some pair where the price is $1.15, okay? Well, one, one thing you can do in these, um, these AMMs, you can do this with any AMM, is you can spend money swapping stuff to manipulate the price, but you just might not make a profit out of it. So you could move the price down to, let's imagine some more ticks along here. Um, I'll just put some dots here to show that there's a lot of ticks in between. Um, and let's say the price down here is like 0 0.01, <laughs> okay, it's really low now. <laughs> what if you got the price down here? Well, you could do that. I mean, it's not that hard to do. If you get a flash loan out, you can spend, say, token one to get token zero, and you can get the price down to like 0 0.01 <clears throat> very easily. But the problem is that in the process, you've spent a lot of tokens, which you're going to have to pay back. Okay, so you spend token one to lower price. Okay. Except I think I got that the wrong, wrong, wrong way around. I think you have to spend token zero to lower the price, but that's not important. But then you've spent a lot and you have to pay it off. So then you could spend token one to increase the price, but if you do that, it's just a symmetric process and you get back to where you started, plus you've paid fees along the way, and so you haven't got any advantage, okay? But what if you did the following? You spend token zero to lower the price, and then uh, you do a double add of liquidity. Um, now, that costs you money as well. But you've got extra liquidity now. So let's, let me just say it's down here, near the 0 0.01 mark. And XXX is where I double added the liquidity. Now that I've got more liquidity in there, that means I can actually swap forward again. But this time, the price won't move as fast because there's more liquidity there. And that means that I can swap for a profit. So spend token one to uh, at um, better price with increased liquidity. Um, I should have put step zero here as get flash loan. <laughs> And then step four is pay off flash loan and keep the profit. And that's essentially the gist of the um, uh, of uh, the uh, attack. And I'll probably leave it at that level for this um, 
for this interview because going into the details, it's probably just going to be too much for the interview. That just gives you the general idea of the hack. The, the, the important thing is finding out how to do that double out of liquidity. Uh, yeah. And that is covered in the blog post, which we'll also put in the description. Yeah, if you want to understand better how that double out of liquidity understands better, I highly recommend the post where he describes in detail is probably definitely one of the best one one of the best um, post mortem or I don't I don't know if it's a post mortem because you didn't actually hack it but it's definitely one of the best bug writing reports I've ever read. Oh, thanks very much. I actually had a lot of practice in doing kind of um, blog posts and writing and academic writing uh, as part of my background. I did actually do a PhD way back in the past. As I recommended in another interview, don't do a PhD. I don't think it's a, it's a wise course of action in the 21st century. I think it's an outdated um, institution in general. I see. So for certain subfields, it might be okay, but certainly not for computer yeah. science, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now with information being available so easily, there's less and less reasons why you would engage in that type of educational structure. And when we talk about bountings in a more general sense, how do you select which bounties and protocols to dig into? You mentioned that having a high amount of funds under custody is one of the things that you look at, but what are, are other things that you're trying to to look for before you decide to dig in? Yeah, um, so a high amount of funds locked up in the contract is fairly far down the list. Uh, by that stage, I would have already gone through another process, which is essentially I look for uh, projects that have a lot of complexity. That's probably my number one uh, criterion uh, and then I like to look at the kind of complexity that's in there. And if it's a mathematical complexity that relies on like understanding fairly complex math, then I'll, I'll probably look into that one because I've got a fair bit of mathematical background and it doesn't scare me off as much as other people. Uh, the next thing I kind of look at is what is the project's reputation and history of paying out bug bounties. I'll often uh, look at Twitter and join the actual project's Discord itself and see what discussion there's been on there about that kind of thing. I mean, for instance, with KyberSwap, I did actually go on their Discord first and just search, searched for the word bounty and then read through pretty much all the old posts about it over several years. And it turned out that they did pay out bounties for um, genuine bugs. They, they, they'd stated that publicly on their Discord. Yeah, and on a case-by-case -case basis, they said, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's say you found a project that looks like they are used to paying bounties. It looks up your alley like a lot of math, very complex, and you started digging into it, trying to find bugs. When do you decide it's time to move on? When do you, let's say, give up and say, maybe this is not going to be worth my time anymore? 
Yeah, that's so tricky. Because sometimes uh, I've... Okay, I can tell a story. So for, earlier this year, I, I looked at Perennial, which is on Immunify, and I looked at that for, yeah, well over 40 hours. And then I was thinking about giving up on it, and I thought, I shouldn't give up on this just yet. Uh, <clears throat> because there are some weird things about this protocol already. That, they're not things that I can exploit, but they're, they're weird. I should just look a bit longer. And so I did, and then I ended up actually finding a bug which has submitted, and someone had beat me to the punch on that one. So that was a bit of a shame, um, but it did show that my gut instinct that there was something there uh, was legit. So I don't really know how to, how to answer the question of when to leave, except possibly to say, I usually ignore my first, first temptation to, to let go of a project and try a bit harder. And uh, sometimes I'll even come back to a project, even though I've gone on and looked at another one in the meantime, just because I think it might be worth having a look again. But I don't know how to answer that question. I, it's just sort of a gut feel thing at the moment. Right, right. And let's say on the best case scenario, you do find something. And for example, that is not a, on a bug bounty platform, like the Carbus swap. How do you contact the team? What is the best way to do it? Yeah, in this case, I, I usually just look for uh, an email address uh, that they've publicly posted somewhere. Uh, and then um, in KyberSwap's case, I decided to use Keybase to continue uh, a more immediate kind of chat. Uh, and I met them there, and then we sort of verified that we were who we said we were based on what we'd said in the email and um, continued the discussion there. Can you explain what Cubase is? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think of it as an end-to-end an -end encrypted platform, a lot like Signal, but what I quite like about it is that you don't actually need to have a phone number associated with it. Uh, that's about all I can say about it. Uh, I'd, I'd been recommended it by someone from Immunify in a previous interaction with them. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And now you've been in touch with the project, and how do you negotiate what a fair amount you think it would be? You know, because some projects might think, oh, I might just pay X amount, but you think it would really be worth 2X amount or 3X amount. So how yeah. do you go through this? negotiation process that can be quite tricky because it's in the project's best interest to pay you the lowest amount, financially speaking, maybe not from a reputation perspective. So how do you handle that? Yeah, that, well, that was, okay, that was quite tricky. I've only landed two bounties so far. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have been big ones. Uh, that's true. With Notional, which was my first bounty, it was clear from their bug bounty terms what I would be paid. I had to show economic damage. I showed them a certain economic damage. And it was 10% or a maximum cap of 500K, but I only could show $1.5 million in economic damage. 
<coughs> later I discovered that the maximum would have been like 1.76, but one, the difference between that and 1.5 wasn't very big. It's not something I'm going to quibble about. That's how I got the 150k for them because it was clear from their bug bounty terms. So I guess with KyberSwap, what I decided to do was take the approach that let's assume that they did have a bug bounty program. What's the standard terms for a bug bounty program? And what you tend to find on Immunify is it's 10% of economic damage or a maximum cap. So in this case, because they had 100 million in uh, TVL at stake, 10% of that is 10 million. Uh, and there are some projects that have a $10 million bounty. They're on the rarer side. Uh, so what would be a kind of maximum cap that is still fair for that level of TVL? That's what I had to kind of determine. And so I, I gave them a range um, of values that I thought was fair. And um, then we ended up settling on 1.1 million in um, Kyber Network Crystal equivalent as, as the bounty paid in installments. And I was really happy with that outcome. I think it could have been higher, uh, but that was a fair amount, I think. I was really quite, quite pleased with it, of course. Uh, and I think that, you know, had they put that out as their uh, bug bounty program, that would have been a reasonable amount to, to put as the max. Maybe maybe 1.5 as the max is more appropriate for that level of TVL. Uh, but TVLs can fluctuate, so you know, who knows yeah. what, what you actually set that to. Um, but yeah, was, uh, that, that's essentially what I did. Is I sort of just followed with what the standard was in the community. Right. And I think that goes to show that it's important for projects to display that are open to bounties. Because you saw in CarboSwap's Discord that they've already paid other bounties, and I imagine they probably disclosed in other places, maybe their GitHub, maybe their website, that they have bounties. So I feel like that could be that can go a long way from the project's per perspective. Yeah. Um, and when you're working, I mean, on it's better. It's better. It's better for a project that they have a defined bug bounty program because that incentivizes white hats. If you don't have that, then you're only incentivizing black hats. That's, that's yeah. the asymmetry of the situation. If you really want people to cast their eyeballs across it, you have got to have a defined bug bounty program, I believe. But uh, they're, they're well on the way to um, having one. So uh, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, get a bug bounty if you don't want to get actually exploited. Yeah. So. When you're looking for bugs, what does your setup look like? And how do your approach work? Like, how many monitors do you have? What size are they? What keyboard do you use? What IDE yeah. do you use? Those sort of things that are somewhat silly, but still interesting to learn about different people's workflow and how they work. Yeah. I think setup's important. Uh, I'm not uh, a gamer, so I don't need a big monitor with a high refresh rate. I do need a big monitor though. So I, I actually got a fairly cheap one and it's got a, it's a 4K monitor. I think it's 32 inches. It's just a Dell. I don't need a high refresh rate or anything like that. I just need the screen real estate. 
I do like to have a lot of things open on the screen at once so I can quickly refer to things. Uh, I find that's important, otherwise I'm having to um, alt-tab between windows all the time and, and it just does actually cut down your focus. Uh, I have an ergonomic keyboard because I get RSI if I don't use one, but that's something that's been in place for a long time. Uh, and it completely prevents RSI, which is awesome, so the tools really do matter. I, since I switched to using an ergonomic keyboard, I've been fine, I haven't had any more pain. Uh, the mouse doesn't matter at all. I tend to use hotkeys. What ID do I use? I just use VS Code. Um, I do use Etherscan an awful lot, so it's worth learning about Etherscan and how it works. Uh, and I also do use, I sometimes write my own little tools, which are just basically bash scripts, which do filtering on, say, an alchemy, the output of an um, calls to the alchemy API. So I need to learn JQ, you know, JQ, the um, JSON query command line tool, has the most annoying syntax in the world, but I like to use that for like filtering out results and stuff. I, um, I don't just read the source code, even though that's the most important thing to do. I don't just read the source code, I also look at the contracts live on the blockchain and how they're, the kinds of transactions that have been submitted to them and so on. I look at internal transactions and stuff like that as well and try and get a sense for how these things are actually used in practice. Yeah. Right, and when you're looking at the transactions, it can get pretty noodly. So, how do you look for fishy things when you look at Etherscan? I, think I don't it's know if I'm necessarily looking for fishy things. I'm more looking for the details of particular transactions sometimes. If I want an answer to a question, like what kind of parameters would someone actually put into this function, because it's not always clear when you're reading the code immediately. You can read through the docs and eventually work it out, but either you read the test code or you look online and find out what real people have submitted. Mm -hmm. And they may not have actually submitted those values. That may have come through the web API, but you want to know what are the real values that mm -hmm. kind of get passed in. As for looking for fishy things, yeah, um, I don't explicitly go looking for fishy things with Etherscan right. yet. Yeah. So usually when you start an audit, everything's new, you don't really know what's going on, you go in there, then you start getting more familiar with the code and asking more nuanced and interesting questions. You know, there's all these different stages. Then there's the proof of concept. So what's the favorite part of the hunt for you? What's the part that you enjoy the most? Or do you just like all of it? Uh. I think it gets fun past a certain activation energy, <laughs> if I can put it that way, a bit like a chemical reaction. So opening up, a f you know, cloning the repo and opening up your IDE VS code, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a slog for the first few hours. I always find that. I think it's around the time that I start understanding what's going on that it starts to get interesting around the time where I, when I can start asking creative questions, like what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Mm -hmm. uh, and then at some point it becomes completely 
addicting and I can't stop and I look at down at my watch and it's like 5 p.m. and I'm like, where the hell did the day go? Damn it, I have to go home for dinner now because I need to go be a dad tonight and I can't, you know, break my promises. So, and then I sit in this state of um, mild discomfort the entire evening, wake up the next morning, do another bit of parenting before I go to work. And then I'm like, bang, we're back on. All right, cool. And then just, yeah, whole days can disappear like that. It's, it's just really fun. It's like stalking prey. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think for, for most people, it's like that. The, the start is always a bit of a drag. You don't really know what's going on. You just, uh. And then as things become more clear, it starts to get, you start to get really addicted to it. And then that becomes an issue because, you know, most of us have some other things to do in life. You're like, oh, but I don't want to do life right now. I just, I just want to do this. Yeah, exactly. And why did you choose to go more into bounties versus doing audits? Ah, great question. Well, I mean, I think I always in intended to go into bounties. And I really actually did hope to get better at auditing uh, first. But because I had that success with um, Notional last year, I knew I'd done it once before. And I kind of wanted to prove to myself that it wasn't just a fluke. Uh, and a lot of people have spoken about how it could potentially be a more lucrative path if you've got, say, the courage to uh, do that for a few months without getting, without the uh, definite outcome of some income. And yeah, the question is, how did I develop that ability to uh, be okay with going out into the wild and not necessarily uh, catching my prey, <laughs> metaphorically speaking? And the truth to that answer, well, sorry, the answer to that question is that I've actually been cultivating that for quite a long time in my life because I always wanted to do uh, something outside of employment. I've had that dream for a long time, but I haven't always been able to like make good on that desire because you do actually need to make money and to pay the bills and so on. But I. Um, there's a few times in my life where I've actually taken a break from working to work on my own projects. Uh, uh, so 2008 was one of those occasions. In 2014, I took a whole year off to sort of try and make a computer game. And I completely failed at that, by the way. But I remember just going, OK, you've got that chunk of money. This is before I had a family. You've got that chunk of money. You can always go back and make some more later. Let's just see if you can get okay with living off practically nothing for a while. This time around, when I started this endeavor, I think what I was lucky enough to have done was put enough or what put enough or pay off enough of our mortgage that I could redraw some of that if things got really desperate. Uh, and that's something I've been doing since the day we got the mortgage. It's like, the reason I want to pay this off faster is to increase my flexibility 
the ability to follow, follow opportunities and that kind of things. Um, so yeah, it was just a delaying gratification for more, f for, for more freedom. So I, I knew that I could at least give this a go for six months. Um, when I first started competitive auditing on Code Arena, once I had the notional bounty, well, I had quite a lot of runway. Funnily enough, it was about to run out, but um, it didn't. And now I have even more runway. So unfortunately, I've, for those people who are stuck without <coughs> this ability, but I've, I've, I seem to have got into one of those success to the successful feedback loops, which always seem very unfair to me on a cosmic level. There's not much you can do about some of these success to the successful feedback loops. They've got nothing to do with anything that can be controlled through mechanisms that humans control. They're just like kind of cosmic um, things that happen sometimes. <laughs> but that's, that, that's one reason why people should save money. Like people often think, ah, oh, no, I want to enjoy my life right now. Well, one of the reasons you do it is so that you have optionality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely some cosmic elements to it, so to speak, a bit of luck. But it's important to know that you've been preparing for this. You've had your runway planned. You obviously have been building the skills to be able to do this sort of thing for most of your life at this point. So I think it's a lot on you as well. You know, I, I don't think you should uh, discard that. If, you know, someone in your shoes that wasn't you, they wouldn't probably have had the success you had. Yeah, that is one thing I'm concerned about with a lot of the hungry new bounty hunters that don't even know that much about programming. Um, while it is true that some people didn't have a background in programming, if you look at their background, they've got some other kind of technical skill. Like they might already be good at maths or they may understand finance really well or something like that. Uh, for those, my path is definitely kind of a software heavy path. Um, to actually get the kind of skills that I had, it doesn't take 20 years, definitely doesn't take that long. But it probably would take three years of really dedicated study to, and I don't mean at a university, I just mean study online, to kind of learn, um, first of all, how blockchains work, basics of programming languages, how programming languages parsed and translated into abstract syntax trees and then into EVM code. How is all that sort of stuff done? This is all sort of stuff that's really useful to know. Basic stuff like what is two complex two's complements representation of signed integers, that sort of stuff, you know. How is this stuff represented internally in the machine, that kind of stuff. All of that really does come into play on a day-by-day -day basis for me when I'm doing my auditing and bounty hunting. And to get those skills, yeah, you, you do have to kind of go hard, but the best way to do it is to by just being interested in it. And I guess I was lucky that I always just found computers fascinating and wanted to know all that stuff. Like I, I did do a lot of learning just for the sake of it because I liked it. But um, if you were just like trying to do it as a directed thing, yeah, to learn all those skills would take like three years. But 
it's not like you couldn't do auditing and bounty hunting at the same time. I just would recommend you do half-half or something like that. Because if you really want to hit the, hit the heights of fully understanding protocols, you're just going to have to have a certain level of depth of understanding of things. Yeah. If you had to pick one or two skills that are the most responsible for your success, what would that be? That could be, you know, maybe a mathematical aptitude or it could be just perseverance. What do you think that would be for you? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. I think perseverance beats everything else because with perseverance you can learn what's necessary even if it's the first time you've come across something, you can just push through it because you like to persevere. But if we were just to, to talk about actual hard skills, um, knowing mathematics up to the level of calculus, I think, is, is very worthwhile. Like, uh, being able to, having a familiarity with algebra, absolutely. You just, you kind of need it if you're gonna do finance. You need to be able to do algebra. And that means solving quadratics cubics, exponentials, logarithmic functions, and that kind of stuff. Actually, probably don't need calculus. Like, it's, very, it's very unlikely that you'd actually need differentiation and integration for these kinds of projects. But the mere fact that you were able to learn calculus probably means that your maths ability is good enough. That's one skill. And then the other one would be to really understand how programming languages work at a high level, how they're translated from the high level language down to like EVM bytecode. If you understood the basics of that, you've got a good leg up, I think. Interesting, interesting. And you're particularly interested in formal verification. What do you think is attractive from that perspective? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm interested in correctness in general, and uh, I just think that formal verification hasn't necessarily been tried as much as it should have to uh, to try and increase the correctness of these uh, of, of smart contracts. The general argument against formal verification is it takes too long and it costs too much, and I think that's true for like a web app. But if a half billion dollar hack isn't incentive enough to like do it the slow hard way, then what is? And so I'm still surprised that people haven't used formal methods as much as they have. The other thing is I kind of think the approach that people are taking might not be the right one. So kind of see formal verification being used at the end, which, and by that I mean using formal verification, you're trying to do mathematical proofs on solidity itself, solidity code itself. And I don't actually think that's the, the right approach because if you read a white paper for, say, Uniswap v3 or some lending protocol or whatever, there's usually some maths in that. That's actually where you should start. You want to start with that maths that's in that white paper. And then what you want to do is do this process called program refinement, where you slowly make that more and more concrete until it finally is solidity. It's like a multi-step process, and each step along the way, you show mathematically the correspondence between this level of abstraction and one slightly below it, and you do it in a stepwise manner all the way down to the bottom. 
I haven't really seen that approach being taken anywhere in the Web3 community, even though it has been done in other places. I actually worked for uh, a verification project called the SEL4 project, where they did exactly that process of refinement, they had a high-level mathematical specification for an operating system, and they went all the way down to C code in multiple steps. I think that's the right approach. I don't see anyone really doing that. So that's what I would like to try. And I, the first thing I want to do it is, on is like a, um, a token contract. And I want to see how different it turns out to ERC-20. And if it turns out somewhat the same with some slight differences, that would give me some indication that maybe it was a good, uh, it was a good approach. But we'll, we'll see it. I may well fail at this, uh, this sort of um, program that I've set for myself. Yeah, no, I think the space needs a lot more focus on prevention rather than mitigation. I think most of the solutions we have at the moment focus on mitigation or like fixing things after the fact and not really on preventing things from happening in the first place. So we can take an analogy, for example, exercising and eating healthy it's a lot cheaper than getting a hospital treatment because you got super sick from drinking too much or something. Yeah, 100%. Right? And I feel like that's the sort of approach that we need in the security space, but that's also at odds with the race to go to market. All the projects want to go to market yesterday, and that's not cohesive to having the most secure protocol. So I think there still needs to be a, a middle balance that the industry finds somehow, maybe through improving how fast security can be implemented or tested, or just having protocols robust enough or with enough support that they can wait that extra month or two in order to, to hit the market with a more secure code base. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, that, that tension between the two things of getting to market and making it safe, really hard. Well, 100 Proof, it's been a pleasure to have you here. It's been super fun to hear about your latest hack, and I'm excited to see what else you come up with in the hopefully near future. <laughs>